0: If you never get married, it's not premarital sex. Welcome back to the Don't Knock It podcast, where we address misconceptions about Jesus' character, His church, and His word. By doing this, we hope to encourage you to delight in Christ before dismissing Him, to know Him before knocking Him. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez, and the misconception I'll be addressing today stems from the short clip you just heard, a clip that serves as evidence of how everyone, whether they're a believer or not, is capable of doing mental and interpretive gymnastics to avoid obeying God and what He says in His Word, something I myself have been guilty of doing plenty of times before. So here's a main point of today's episode. Since the Bible doesn't explicitly say, thou shalt not have sex outside of marriage, in the same way it says thou shalt not murder, or so some people seem to think, where exactly do we see it taught? Where do we see it taught, or, or do we see it taught at all? Where do we get this idea of wait until marriage? What exactly does the Bible teach about sex? What is the historical Christian sexual ethic? This is what we will explore in this episode. Now, I was going to wait until the end of this episode to say this, but I think it's necessary to say it now, because if I'm being honest, I wish someone had started with this with me when I tried to justify my actions, and that is this. If you're looking for an excuse, you're going to find one. The human heart can be so quick to compromise and take shortcuts when it involves immediate gratification. Or when we recognize that reaching a particular standard involves a long, drawn-out, and oftentimes burdensome process, and so we end up settling for less. It is truly extraordinary how, when enough personal satisfaction is involved, we become professional persuaders and the worst investigators. So the purpose of this episode is to present the information worth investigating, thinking deeply about, and maybe even discussing it with the person you're currently playing house with, but not in the usual order you've probably heard before. You've probably heard millions of prohibitions first don't do this, don't do that. Nope, you can't do that either because it's going too far, which only leaves you frustrated and brokenhearted, doubting God's goodness by asking him things like, God, relationships and sexual intimacy are both good things. Why won't you let me have both? And just as a side note, I just had a beautiful little girl, so if you hear her in the background, <laughs> that's why. Um, so anyway, before you hear uh, hey, don't do that from me, I want to present God's purposes regarding intimacy first, and then we'll look at the prohibitions. In this episode, I'll seek to explain and emphasize the truth before prohibiting the counterfeits. Welcome to episode 21. So I want to begin with what we have come to understand as the beginning of human intimacy in Genesis 2. In the Garden of Eden, when God presents Eve to Adam, Adam's immediate response is to break out in lovely poetry in Genesis 2.23 where he says, referring to Eve, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What follows in the very next verse is the classic historical definition of marriage. Verse 24 says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Before we dive into that verse, I want to share an idea someone shared with me a while ago when they asked me, hey, do you ever wonder why we design our wedding venues like a garden? To which I responded with, no, why? And they said, because we first knew love in a garden. I knew they were referring to this passage in Genesis and I was like, whoa. That's really cool. But when I recently shared the same idea with my friend Joshua, his response was, which garden though? And my mind thought about another garden mentioned in scripture and it hit me like a sledgehammer to the chest. Of course, the garden of Gethsemane on the night before Jesus was crucified. There we see another beautiful poem, so to speak, of love and obedience when he prays to the Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done two gardens at two different points in history, indicating God's purpose in creation. And we'll refer back to this idea at the end of the episode, so be sure to stay till the end. So anyway, I just thought I'd share that because I thought it was brilliant. Now back to the verse, Genesis 2.24 begins with, for this reason, and then is followed by the historical Christian definition of marriage. But what is this reason? What causes a man to leave his father and mother, his home, his past ways, his previous devotions and distractions, and be joined to his wife, to take on this new identity as a spouse, as a husband, or as a wife? The answer to, an, the answer to that is obviously found in the previous verse, in the phrase, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. This is a recognition of unity and purpose. You have been made from me and for me. My purpose in God's creation is now intertwined with yours, and our two purposes have actually become one. We see this idea of complete unity demonstrated in the Hebrew phrase, one flesh. So what exactly does this mean and what does it have to do with our topic for today? I went through the trouble of mentioning this because the process of leaving a previous life to begin, to begin a new one with someone else is an incredibly vulnerable process. I mean, think about it. You are fully unraveling yourself in every aspect possible and immersing yourself into the life of another. Usually when we think of two people getting married, we think of two families coming together to make one, combining two past family histories together like a melting pot, So although there's some truth to that, it's not what the Hebrew phrase one flesh is trying to communicate. It's not the combination of previous family ties or loyalties. Becoming one flesh actually means the dissolving of those old bonds and family loyalties and creating a new set of priorities within a new family purpose. Obviously, both me and my wife still honor, love, and seek counsel and wisdom from our own parents, but we don't answer to them and tailor our entire lives to their priorities. We are our own new family. The two that have become one are so close that they function like one person, balancing each other's strengths and weaknesses so that together they can fulfill their God-given calling. Okay, Chris, I thought this episode was about sex. Why are we talking about marriage? The reason for that is because becoming one flesh also refers to sex, because the unity of one man and one woman literally become one flesh in a child. In marriage, each person is giving themselves holistically to each other, financially, personally, socially, emotionally, spiritually, and this unity is expressed physically in the act of sex. Sex is complete nakedness nakedness and union with somebody. God created sex to publicly say to everyone else that, I belong completely and exclusive, exclusively to you. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, as Adam declared. Sexual intercourse is the most intimate form of physical union. There's no other behavior that is designed to connect two people together more deeply. We literally see it in how our bodies are made. We also see this expressed in phrases like going all the way or reaching home plate or stealing the deal. So because sex is the most intimate form of physical union, it only makes sense for it to be done with when the ultimate form of personal union has been accomplished, and that is marriage. This is why it belongs only in a relationship where you go all the way, so to speak, on all other levels as well, when you commit to another person legally, economically, socially, and spiritually. Tim Keller compares sex between a husband and wife to the Lord's Supper when he calls both a covenant renewal ceremony. What this means is that both acts are recalling a previous promise made. For example, when Christians share bread and wine together, oftentimes as a wafer and grape juice, they are commanded to practice this meal together in order to reflect on his covenant with his people and proclaim his death until he returns. This act is supposed to remind us as Christians of the intimacy made possible and secured by his sacrifice on the cross. So in sex, you're going back and redoing your marriage by getting completely naked and vulnerable again. You're going back to the night you publicly displayed your self-sacrificial devotion to your spouse where you said, I am yours physically, emotionally, financially, and every other way possible. In the same way coming together as a church body to share a meal together is supposed to deepen our commitment to Jesus and His people, sex is a way of deepening your commitment to your spouse. So if you have sex with someone you're not completely holistically committed to in a public display of commitment in the marriage ceremony, then you're hindering sex from actually accomplishing what it's supposed to accomplish, and that is the deepening of a commitment. This is why if you're playing house with someone who isn't your spouse, it usually usually takes a longer time than usual for the man to propose. Why? Because in his mind, he's already married. He's already reaping the benefits of being married without the financial, legal, and social commitment and accountability attached to it. In his mind, he's probably thinking, why would I buy the cow if I get the milk for free? Obviously, I'm not calling women cows by using this analogy. It just simply means this. Why would I, as a man, publicly display my commitment if I'm already reaping the benefits without any accountability? Why would I do that? I challenge anyone listening to this who is either sleeping with and or living with their boyfriend or girlfriend to address the hesitation. Whether it's coming from you or your boyfriend, if you haven't already wondered, you probably will now. Why hasn't your boyfriend proposed to you yet? And as a man speaking to the men, what's your hesitation? What are you afraid of? Is it fear? Is it lack of leadership? Is its it, is it A distorted understanding of sin and repentance? Or worse, a misunderstanding of the gospel and the responsibilities we have as believers in Christ? If you're thinking, wow, Chris, you're way out of pocket. What or who gives you the right to judge us in this way? It's just sex, dude. Why does God care what I do with my body? If God is good and he created all good things and sex is a very good thing, why wouldn't he let me enjoy it? Here's why. Because the intimacy experienced in marriage between a husband and wife is supposed to reflect the intimacy between Christ and his church. Let's explore that a little further. <music> In Genesis 4, after Adam and Eve sinned by defying God and ate of the forbidden tree, verse 1 tells us that Adam knew or had relations with his wife Eve and she bore their first son Cain. That's an odd way of describing sex, isn't it? That he knew that he knew his wife and she had a son. Even though it's odd, that word will help us understand God's purpose for sex. The Hebrew word for know is yada. And in Genesis 4, it obviously has a sexual connotation to it, but not always. In fact, it is more often used in the Bible as to comprehend, understand, or learn something. For example, in Exodus 6:7, where God says, Then I will take you from my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. For Adam to know Eve through the sexual act means he knows her and understands her in a way that no one else does, in a personal, intimate, and unifying way. Marriage and the sexual act that is meant to accompany it embody such a distinct union that you know or understand this woman or this man in a way that is completely and utterly unique. Another Another definition of yada is to reveal. We also see this me- this meaning in Genesis 4.1 when Adam knew Eve because they revealed their whole selves to each other via the, via the sexual act, as does any husband and wife who enter into the marital bond. Sex is an act that is supposed to be in its very nature entirely self-sacrificing because you are literally giving your body and soul to your spouse each and every time you have sex. Each spouse reveals reveals themselves to each other in ways they could not before as a result the other spouse grasps an understanding of their beloved person more fully than they did and could ever before to know your spouse is to continually grow in your understanding of who they truly are through a lifetime of sexual intimate and personal experiences together now what does this have to do with god so throughout the old testament Throughout the Old Testament, God often presents himself as a husband to his bride, who are, who are his people, Israel. For example, in Hosea 2 verses 19 and 20, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. See, there's our word yada again. And then whenever Israel rebels, God refers to her as a prostitute who whores after other gods when they begin worshiping false idols, which is described in so much detail in Ezekiel 16. So flash forward to the New Testament in Ephesians 5, Paul commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, which builds on our analogy of God being a husband to his bride, his people and then and then again in revelation 21 verse 2 John writes and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband so with all that being said covenant marriage is intended to be a visual image of the of the human divine relationship when people when people witness the loving faithful relationship between husband and wife They are meant to see a picture of how much God loves his people. So, will there be be marriage in heaven? I'm glad you asked, because that helps us understand this a little more. When Jesus teaches that there will be no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven in Matthew 22 and Luke 20, he is teaching something very vital to our understanding about our intimacy here on earth. Since marriage is a symbol and sign of the union of God with his people, as we looked at already, then in heaven we will not need the symbol because we will enjoy the reality. Now, here's probably the most important part of the entire episode. As profoundly intimate as the experience of sex is, at its best, it is just a hint A small taste of the joy, satisfaction, and perfect intimacy we will know with Jesus when we are united to him as his bride. And no, before your mind jumps to a ridiculous question like, so are you saying we're going to have sex with Jesus? I want to clearly say that this union won't be sexual, but our longing for intimacy will be perfected and made complete in Christ. So sex is a foretaste a hint of what it will mean for us to participate in the eternal union of love that exists at the very heart of the Trinity. Our intimacy here on earth is also a taste of the glory of God. Don't believe me? Listen to Jesus' words in his prayer to the Father in John 17, where he says, starting at verse 22, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So his people, us, the church's perfect oneness testifies to the legitimacy of love expressed from the father, both to the son and to the spirit. And then lastly, in that same chapter in John chapter 17, verse three, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, in the Hebrew translation of the New Testament, there we see the word yada in Hebrew for the word no. So to put it as simply as possible, why should sexual intimacy be reserved for marriage? Because sex is an act of worship. All worship in the Bible is commanded to be done within its proper context, and it's the same with sex. This is why God uses the analogy of prostitution when his bride, his people, worship other gods. They are committing spiritual adultery. So, God made a covenant with us. Therefore, it shall be fully consummated when we see Christ as he is, face to face, in heaven. Likewise, when we make a covenant with our spouses, it shall be fully consummated when we see that person as they are on the honeymoon night. Intimacy is made complete in the celebration of of each other before God. It's so normal. I've come to the conclusion that I really don't think that waiting till marriage is even really in the Bible because all of the verses that refer to it are very much from a different time. (laughs) There was no dating, there was no casual relationships. There was either, you know, you're single or you're married essentially back in biblical times. So I don't think there was any sort of relationship to compare to nowadays. So I think it's kind of irrelevant. All the stuff in the Bible about sex before marriage, I think it's outdated. I think that it's kind of sexist most of the time because it's largely geared towards women. And I think it can be scarring. Just be careful, do what's best for you. Follow your heart. Goodbye guys. Now, I know people who don't claim to be Christians are gonna act how they wanna act. You're gonna do what you want. You can do what you want, I get it. I know I shouldn't get upset when people who don't know God act like they don't know God. But I've come to find out that a lot of professing believers and followers of Jesus have the exact same mentality towards sex as this young YouTuber you just heard, which is awfully concerning. So, what I'm gonna do for the remainder of this episode is briefly look at some of the passages in in the New Testament specifically, just so that you don't have the opportunity to to say, oh Chris, that's in the Old Testament. Those commands were for Israel. They don't apply to us anymore. So let's begin with the conception of Jesus. Why do you think it was such a scandalous thing that Mary was pregnant without having been married to Joseph? Because there was a historical, not just cultural, understanding of when and where to consummate the betrothal, meaning to make it complete with having sex, and not just historical or cultural, but religiously. And then even going to the teachings of Jesus himself, many people wrongly assume that just because Jesus was this merciful, tolerant man with wise teachings, that he liberated anyone and everyone to love whoever they want, however they want. But in fact, he didn't liberate sexuality. He made it more conservative when he says in Matthew 5:27 and 28, He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's a pretty distinct line he's drawing there. And he drives that point even further in that passage in the very next verse when he says, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So obviously, this is a figure of speech. But Jesus uses this type of language to emphasize the destructive nature of sexual sin. Now, I'll mention one more teaching about Jesus before we head over to what Paul has to say in his letters about sexual sin. So in Matthew 19, Jesus is confronted about divorce. The Pharisees test him by bringing up a passage from Deuteronomy about divorce, uh, specifically Deuteronomy 24. Yet Jesus does not engage the text that his opponent that his opponents have in mind. Instead, he turns to the opening words of Genesis and uses the classic historical definition of marriage to correct them. He speaks about God's creational intent. So the question for Jesus is not what the law allows or permits, but what God intended. So why does this matter? Why does this matter for us? Because At this point, you may say, well, Chris, I love him or her. We have sex because we love each other and it's mutual. So why would God have a problem with that? Doesn't God permit or allow that? He's loving, isn't he? He's a good God, isn't he? Why wouldn't he allow my significant other and I to experience this good thing that he created? The reason for that is because sex was created and intended to be enjoyed between a man and a woman who are in a covenantal marriage. When sex is ripped out of its proper context, sexual intimacy does not bring us into the lover's embrace, but merely exposes us to the stranger's stare and reduces us to the means of someone else's pleasure. We think it draws us closer to our our boyfriend or girlfriend, but it actually does the opposite. The problem is that sex outside of marriage is a fraud and a fake. It pretends to be true intimacy, but is nothing more than exposure. It uses the language of love and commitment, but knows nothing of either. And by suggesting that true pleasure and intimacy can be experienced outside of a loving, covenantal commitment, perpetuates a massive assault against the very character and glory of God, whose eternal, loving relationship within the Trinity is the blueprint, is the blueprint and pattern for every intimate pleasure that you or I will ever know. In other words, you are hijacking a good gift from God that is meant to reflect His love for us and making it reflect your counterfeit love for another. Now, let's look at what Paul says about sexual intimacy. Paul uses a word in the Greek that serves as an umbrella term to include all sexual activity outside of a faithful marriage between a man and a woman. So if if he's referring to cheating, he'll use this word. If he's referring to sex between an unmarried couple, he'll use this word. If he's referring to incest, he'll use this word. If he's referring to temple prostitution, again, he'll use this word. If he's referring to homosexuality or literally any other counterfeit desire that steers a person away from from true God-honoring intimacy, he'll use this word. The word is porneia where we get the word for pornography. So let me take this time to just fire off the various passages that Paul mentions, where Paul mentions this word. In 1 Corinthians, we see it in uh, 5.1, 6.13, 6.18, and 7.2. In 2 Corinthians, we see it in 12.21. In Galatians, we see it at 5.19. In Ephesians, we see it at 5.3. In Colossians, we see it in 3.5. And in First Thessalonians, we see it in 4-3. And then a handful of times in Revelation, when when John is referring to churches and individuals worshiping other gods or committing ungodly sexual acts. But the passage that is literally the most blatantly obvious, the, the, the passage that is the most blatant, obvious command to reserve sex for marriage. If, if you've tuned out up until this point, focus right here, because this is the most explicitly obvious command to preserve sex until marriage. And that is in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 and verses 8 and 9. And they read like this, verse 2 says, but because of immoralities, porneia, there's our word in the Greek, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. And then in verses eight and nine, we read, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that is, that it is good for them if they remain even, even as I, which means single because Paul was single or celibate, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry for it is better, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Men and women are to marry. I know it says, let them marry, but the actual, uh, phrase in the greek is a command it's it's an imperative paul says men and women are to marry if they have recognized their purpose for each other and their deep desire for each other the solution and the command is to marry not that they should masturbate or make out or go to second and third base or play house together or test ride several cars so to speak before actually committing to purchasing one it says let them marry now, there may be there may be one out there, but I haven't really found it yet of a much clearer command for sex to be reserved for marriage than this one right here. So, I don't think there's an, any excuse. If you refuse to see or accept this, I would challenge you to explore and consider how direct this command is because it's in its in its context, it's it's a command. Paul in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he's addressing marriage, singleness, divorce, and the and intimacy within a godly marriage. Now, there's no chapter in scripture that warns about how sex outside of marriage may bring physical diseases like STDs or emotional heartache or broken homes, which even non-religious studies warn about those things. But instead, what the Bible does What the Bible does do is present passages like Leviticus 18 and 1 Corinthians 6, where we read, You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Or, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. What, this, what these passages do, what this means for us, is that the Bible teaches that we should reserve sexual intimacy for marriage for no other reason than that if we are Christians, we belong to God. That's the reason. We simply belong to God. Sex outside of marriage is not only a sin against ourselves and our partner, but it's a fraudulent misrepresentation of God and a cruel distortion of the intimacy he created to be a picture of the eternal intimacy of the Trinity, of God himself. So if if after all of this, you're still not convinced, if you still have that attitude of, eh, Chris, I don't see it. I don't see the value in waiting. I'm not changing. Or if you're thinking, but Chris, I've been living and sleeping with my girlfriend or boyfriend for several years now. How could I just throw all that away? How could I? This may sound harsh, but I need to say it. If you're at that place, I would humbly ask you to reconsider what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it truly mean to be a Christian What does it mean to repent, to turn from my own selfish, sinful ways, and walk in the forgiveness Jesus accomplished on my behalf? Tread carefully, my friends, because the deconstructing of one's faith often seems to begin with an overly flexible sexual ethic. You compromise on who you sleep with and when you sleep with them, then more often than not, you'll most likely compromise on what you believe is true about God and His Word. At that point, you'll be perpetuating the ancient deception of the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? If you won't take it from me, take it from God himself when he inspired the Apostle Paul to write the following in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8, where he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification simply means that you, the process of you becoming more like Jesus So for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So here Paul is warning them that that for them not to be like the Gentiles, the people who don't believe in God and are directed by their lustful passions, and to not transgress or sin against a brother or sister in this matter because be careful. The Lord is the avenger of all these things. And then lastly, he says, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects that, or so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, do not reject the gracious, merciful God and His Holy Spirit to pursue your own lustful passions, even if they're comfortable and the most secure, or what seems to be the most secure. This is why I put together this episode, so that you may walk in the will of God, the one who bled and died for you to have eternal life in every aspect of your life, both in the public, in the public sphere and the private one. It is in that Savior I encourage you to seek out and to pursue, to delight in Him before dismissing Him, to know Him before knocking. Him. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Don't Knock It podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ramirez. Grace and peace, family.